0: In space, no one can hear you scream, but on the internet, everyone can hear fans bitch. And when it comes to the follow-up to James Cameron's 1986 action-horror classic, Aliens, bitch, they do. 1992's Alien 3 was almost immediately and universally considered a disappointment. The release of the assembly cut has helped, and it's become a bit more divisive over the years, but I think most still agree it's just not as good as its predecessors. And it's not easy to unpack precisely how or where it all went wrong, and how so much attention went into a movie that turned out not so much terrible as just, well, not very entertaining. And that's where I can't help but wonder, how? How does a studio who's sitting on one of the most successful franchises of all time manage to create a follow-up so bland and unremarkable that entitled film students will be making podcasts about it for years to come? Well, I suppose before I can judge their movie, I would first have to ask myself if I think I could create a better one. Hello and welcome to Dodd Does the Sequel Alien 3 Edition. Today we'll explore what about Alien 3 doesn't work, and I'll be pitching my ambitious story treatment for what I think a third alien could have been. Let's make a sequel to Aliens worth telling the internet nerds, get away from it you bitch. Firstly, a disclaimer, even if I was able to come up with a better story for a third Alien movie, I will have done so with the benefit of hindsight. Making a movie is such an overwhelming and disorientating experience that it's almost impossible to see the forest for the trees. The original vision ultimately gets lost in the minutia, and you depend on some very talented and organized team members to put the whole thing together and pray that it will look like a movie when it's done. The production of Alien 3 has become the stuff of Hollywood legend, notoriously unorganized, unfocused, and unfriendly. The first two films, Ridley Scott's 1979 masterpiece Alien and James Cameron's blockbuster follow-up, were so widely acclaimed and popular that the studio seemed to collapse under the pressure of their own expectations when tackling a sequel. It's a miracle that director David Fincher was able to piece together the movie that he did. And to the filmmaker's credit, almost everything behind the scenes in Alien 3 went wrong. The studio rushed into production to meet an announced deadline without having a finished script or even a clear vision of what the story would be, and the results were, well, catastrophic. The production was a nightmare, complete with creative collisions, a fibrillating budget, a wayward story, an ever-changing script, an unfinished set, and a list of unachievable special effects. So I want to make it very clear that I don't think I'm a better filmmaker than anybody involved in Alien 3. I just have time, freedom, no financial burden, and other creative ideas to borrow from. Things that David Geiler, Walter Hill... David Fincher, and all the creators of Alien 3 did not have. And before we dive deeper into this thing than an embryo into a human chest cavity, be warned that this episode will contain significant spoilers for every movie in the Alien franchise, including Prometheus and Alien Covenant. If you haven't seen those films, go check them out if you don't want them spoiled. And if you don't care about spoilers, then don't check out anything beyond Aliens, because they all suck. Let's start by outlining the good things about Alien 3, of which there are many. I'll be generally talking about both versions, since both the theatrical and assembly cuts have the same strengths and weaknesses. Firstly, I don't think Alien 3 is atrocious. David Fincher knows how to create atmosphere, establish mood, and set a tone. When he wants you to feel depressed, you feel depressed. When he wants you to be grossed out, (laughs) you're grossed out. And when he wants you to question your existence amidst an atmosphere of dreary meaninglessness and empty nihilism, well, you get Alien 3. Years ago, I watched a brilliant video essay from YouTuber Rafa on his channel, The Long Take, about how Alien 3 intentionally subverts the happy ending of aliens into something paralleling the bleak ethos of 90s counterculture. Rafa observes that Alien 3 circles back to the mistrustful and tense atmosphere akin to Ridley Scott's 79 original, whilst defiantly revoking the 80s optimism-fueled happy ending presented by Cameron's Aliens. And while I'm not sure it works, I'm glad the movie went in its own thematic direction, rather than become a carbon copy of the previous film. It introduces religion into the alien saga and wrestles with larger questions about life and salvation. Is it what the franchise needed? Not sure. But it was unique, and for that, I respect it. The decision to have Ripley impregnated with a new alien queen is unpleasant, but feels like a natural evolution for the character. She's been fighting this demon for so long, it's finally become a part of her. She's become mother. How does she reconcile that? How does she keep moving forward after this thing has taken everything from her? How does she spend her final days, saving humanity or damning it? Some pretty interesting questions arise, even if they're not fully explored, and Sigourney Weaver has some good moments, even if her performance isn't quite as memorable as the previous films. Finally, the cinematography is beautiful, the acting believable, and the score from Elliot Goldenthal is haunting at times, stirring at others. Yes, Alien 3 has many good qualities. Unfortunately, its story isn't among them. So, what about Alien 3 doesn't work? Well, it's been talked about to death, but I can't avoid discussing how off-putting the radical narrative course correction is and how it impacts the rest of the film. Not unlike a certain other movie that came out in 2017 that also set out to subvert our expectations. Alien 3 immediately undoes everything the previous movie spent its entire runtime setting up, killing off three of the previous film's main characters during the opening credits. Whether or not you want to praise the movie's boldness, one has to admit that the execution is jarring, and it feels cheap. Hicks... Bishop and Newt are killed off-screen, and we learn of this information through a graphic of a computer report, which amounts to nothing more than a title card essentially just telling us that they're dead. Daring? Yes. Subversive? Yes. Effective? Not at all. You see, a story needs to work at grounding its audience. Tone? atmosphere, and foreshadowing are all techniques that help prime viewers for the emotional journey they're about to take. When that groundwork isn't properly laid or is brought on too hastily, an audience can disengage emotionally. And once that happens, it's almost impossible to get them back on board. I recently watched Alien 3 with Adam who hadn't seen it before, and I could tell how quickly he checked out. Alien 3 expects us to understand that an alien egg is on board the Sulaco, something that's logistically impossible, except that Ripley's newfound family are dead, killed by the logistical impossibility that we're still trying to figure out, and introduce us to the new characters and setting all within about four minutes of actual screen time, not counting the title cards. It's too much, too fast, and it creates a feeling of unease that prevents us from properly investing In the rest of the story. While the production design and cinematography are well done, I don't know that this setting or premise is different enough from what we've seen in previous movies. The idea of a group of humans trapped in a confined space with a single xenomorph running around in the dark is kind of just alien all over again, this time without any tension. There are too many characters with too little personality for us to care about any of them, they're just disposable victims for the alien. I like how in the story they have to actively hunt and kill the thing before the company arrives rather than just escape it, but I feel like that nuance is lost and it just feels like more people trapped with a monster. As a kid, I always thought, they're on a planet, why don't they just go outside and get away from this thing? I think the movie could have focused more on Ripley trying to actively recruit the prisoners to help her kill it rather than just run away from it. I won't belabor the special effects. They're bad. We all know they're bad. The filmmakers knew they were bad. We don't have to dwell on it. I do applaud them for their innovation. They had to create many shots of an alien creature uh, running down hallways and scurrying along ceilings without the foggiest idea of how they were going to do it. Um, They ended up doing a lot of optical compositing, which is very tricky work. And unfortunately, they did not have the time Or the money to do it properly and the movie definitely suffers for it. Uh, Other movies at the time had really effective use of optical compositing such as The Addams Family, The Rocketeer, and Hook. Alien 3 looks utterly unfinished by comparison. I really wish someone would go in and just clean up the color grading and lighting of the composites so that the puppeteering can be fully appreciated. And finally, Alien 3 introduces a new aspect of the alien lore that I'm not sure is entirely appropriate. The idea that the xenomorph embryo adopts genetic traits from its host was instantly popular, although I think maybe perhaps for the wrong reasons. This is the first time we see an alien not born of a human, but rather from a dog, or an ox, depending on which version you're watching. And the result is a quadrupedal alien that moves uh, more like a beast than a man. Uh, Except for the times that it's clearly a man in a rubber costume. And while toy companies and fan fiction have gone crazy with this idea over the years, I believe Kenner released a line of action figures in the early 90s featuring a bull alien, a gorilla alien, and a scorpion alien, just to name a few how a facehugger impregnated a scorpion is unclear. I'm personally not a fan of this evolution in alien mythology. You see, I think what makes the xenomorph scary aren't the ways in which it's alien, but the ways in which it's human. We like to think that certain characters are scary because they're inhuman. We say Michael Myers is scary because he lacks humanity, or that the Terminator is scary because he's a machine. But is the Terminator scary in the same way that the Daleks from Doctor Who are scary? As Rob Ager over at CollativeLearning.com has brilliantly pointed out, both the Terminator and Michael Myers actually have quite a bit of humanity in them. The Terminator shows frustration and glimpses of ego. And Michael Myers, you know, breathes heavily and often makes audible gasps or uh, exertions of pain just like any of us would. These guys aren't scary because they're completely inhuman. They're scary because they're humans doing inhuman and inhumane things. What's creepy is the uncanny blend of human and inhuman. A predator that looks like something you could reason with or relate to, but who ends up being brutal and emotionless. It reminds us that there are people out there for whom reason and negotiation simply won't work. They sadistically just want to harm us, and there's no convincing them otherwise. I think the same effect works for the xenomorph, especially in Ridley Scott's original. The thing looks alien, yes, but also eerily human. This could be because it was played by a human in an alien costume. But I also credit the performance by Balaji Badeo. Its slow and surreal movements turn the thing into a blend of creepy person and predatory insect, more akin to Nosferatu than a velociraptor. And of course, the xenomorph was always intended to be a thematic representation of very violent, very disturbing, but very human behavior. It has a humanoid body with a giant predatory penis for a head. It's sexual aggression and sexual assault personified, and that's why it works. Now, admittedly, James Cameron was the one who first pushed the creature in the direction of mindless animals leaping, hissing, and shrieking their way through aliens. But it works for that movie because he recontextualized the franchise from psychological horror to adrenaline-pumping action, and the aliens in that movie fulfill their purpose as predatory cannon fodder. But once we shine the spotlight back onto the creature itself, it needs to retain the element of malicious and calculated intention behind those non-existent eyes just as H.R. Giger designed. I get the impression from watching Alien 3 that the creature was different just to be different. The change didn't affect the story, increase the threat, or enrich the themes in any way. And speaking of Giger, that wonderful warped wacko, there's an element to the xenomorph design that I think was always hidden in plain sight and eventually became downplayed as the series continued, mostly because no one could explain it. And although this element has never had a canonical explanation, I think it's a fundamental aspect of the alien nature. I'm referring to its mechanical qualities. When you look at this thing, especially in the original, it clearly has tubing, piping, and wiring running all throughout its frame. The skin looks synthetic, the teeth are metallic, and the inner tongue plunges outward with the motorized force of a pneumatic piston. We dismiss all this as just a senseless element of a bizarre design, but thematically, it's very important. The alien, like almost all of the horrors in Giger's artwork, is meant to be a hideous fusion of the biological and the mechanical, a warning against the horrors of humanity becoming as cold hard, and destructive as the industry around us. Like the original space jockey design, before Prometheus's retcons, the xenomorph looks like something organic that's been merged with mechanics, creating a perverse hybrid of sexual aggression and robotic force. And of course, robots aren't born. They're built, lending to the feeling that the alien itself is conceived at least partially from some creator's gruesome, malicious design. The oversight of this element isn't exactly something that Alien 3 does wrong, per se, but to not go back and explore the origins of this alien species and why it looks the way it does certainly feels like a missed opportunity. So, at last, let's get to it. My version of Alien 3. A disclaimer. Not all of these ideas are solely my own. The following will bear similarities to some aspects of Prometheus, Alien Covenant, William Gibson's unproduced Alien 3 screenplay, and even Alien Resurrection. Ironically, very little is borrowed from the actual Alien 3. Take that as you will. I give you Aliens Inside. Earth has become a mostly inhospitable wasteland. Cities and towns have been merged and reorganized into metro states, massive areas in concentric circles separated by giant walls. Some circles are industrial, some are residential, some are commercial. In the center of each metro state is a colossal central complex, owned and operated by the regional government and acting as a control center for the area. Pan down from a field of stars that reveal a vast and flat landscape lined with symmetrical structures. In the distance, a giant wall stretches across the field of view, obscuring the horizon. An industrial-looking pickup truck passes by a sign on the side of the road which reads, Kipps Landing, Costaguana Residential District, Wayland Utani Properties. The vehicle passes through a neighborhood that appears to be a futuristic working-class suburbia. Blocks of densely packed and featureless housing units hug a bending street. Each unit has an identical patch of grass out front, with an obviously fake tree placed at the center. Children play on the street. An elderly woman waves from a lawn chair. The truck stops outside one of the units. Out steps a 14-year-old newt from the passenger seat. She begins to walk up to the unit as Dwayne Hicks exits the driver's seat of the vehicle. The two exchange a few words as if finishing a conversation. As Newt and Hicks approach the unit, Ellen Ripley steps out from the front door. When Ripley asks Newt if she had a good time with Dwayne, Newt coldly walks past her without responding. Ellen looks at Hicks for sympathy and explains that Newt is mad because she's not allowed to go to a party this upcoming Saturday, affirming that the reason is because it's in the scraps. Two miles outside the walls. Hicks explains that he already heard all about it and implies that Ripley should consider easing off of Newt a bit. Ripley explains that there's no way Newt will be allowed to travel outside the walls, especially to a district like the Scraps, where there is still a risk of infection. Hicks makes a sly comment about Ripley becoming the big bad mom, but lets it go with a charming smile. He heads to his truck but assures her he'll be back later. Harris, a neighbor steps out from his adjacent unit and yells a derogatory comment towards Hicks about his truck. Hicks fires a shot back at Harris and winks at Ripley. She smiles at him. Inside, Ripley visits Newt's room to try and talk to her. Receiving the silent treatment back, Ripley tries to explain that districts outside of Costaguana haven't been entirely vaccinated yet, and there's still a danger to anyone outside the walls. Newt replies with a typical comment implying that Ripley is trying to control her life and that it isn't fair. Ripley sympathizes and claims it's for Newt's own good. Newt says something typical of a teenager that maybe she should be deciding what is for her own good. Ripley gets nowhere. Later, Hicks and Ripley sit on a bench swing at the front of the unit. The sun is setting, although it's blocked by the giant wall in the distance. A small view screen plays a news report in the background. The report mentions that the number of those infected in the region has grown beyond 30,000 and that Metro State Delta's chief medical physician, Dr. Julian Combe, urges people to take the contagion seriously, and asks citizens not to venture outside of their designated residential zones. Hicks turns off the report and Ripley comments about why this is exactly why Newt is not allowed outside the walls. Hicks cautiously infers that maybe Newt is just acting out and wants to go because she's not allowed to do anything else. Ripley explains that things are different when one's a parent. She has to be more protective now. Hicks notes that the kid has survived... A lot worse places than the scraps. A vehicle pulls up to the house next door and Harris erupts out of his house. A teenage boy, approximately 17, emerges from the vehicle. Harris walks up to the car and grabs the boy by the arm, scolding him and revealing that his name is Jor. The wife stands in the doorway looking worried. Harris berates Jor for taking the car without permission. He accuses Jor of being a selfish little prick and fumes that His worried mother's been calling all over looking for him. Harris gruffly wrenches his son's arm and violently tosses him towards the house, ordering him to get inside and warning that he'll be up in a minute. The son catches Ripley watching and stares directly at her with a desperate look. Embarrassed, Ripley breaks eye contact and Jor marches dejectedly inside. Once the dispute is over, Harris notices Hicks and Ripley bearing witness. He apologizes that they had to see that and tries to laugh it off as a simple scolding. No one else laughs. Harris escorts his wife inside, and they say goodnight before promptly shutting the door. Ripley and Hicks sit in silence. The next day, Newt is at Costaguana District School C, talking with her friends Ronnie and Louisa. The school is as cold and sterile as everything else in the residential district, crisp and clinical, yet dirty and poorly kept. Ronnie asks Newt if she's going to the party, to which Newt replies she's not allowed. The girls continue to talk as they sneak through a broken door and down a custodial hallway. They reach a grimy room in the basement, an abandoned maintenance room with various groups of students hanging around. Ronnie lights up a cigarette, and the girls pass it around, coughing with each drag. A boy approaches and asks for a light. Newt sees that it's Jor, Harris's son, from next door. Newt asks about the fight she heard the night before. Jor talks about how he stole the car, and Newt thinks that's exciting. Jor replies that he paid for it later. He asks Newt if she wants to come to the big party in the scraps on Saturday, to which Newt replies that she's not allowed. Jor coyly responds that he isn't either, but asks what time she wants to leave anyway. Newt smirks. In an industrial district of Metro State Delta, outside the residential districts, Hicks is working on a construction site as a heavy utility vehicle operator. Smokestacks and other manufacturing structures adorn the area. Hicks is piloting a house-sized vehicle, part crane, part monster truck, out of a large tunnel. A co-worker is helping him navigate. Once parked, Hicks climbs out and the co-worker comments about how you do not want to be on the wrong end of one of those things, and proceeds to tell a story about another ex coworker who accidentally pancaked the foreman's car with one of those. Hicks, stoic as ever, has no comment, but asks his mate how his kids are. The co-worker replies that one has to keep teenagers on a tight leash. Hicks asks if he'd ever let them go to a party out in the scraps, and the co-worker replies in the negative, especially not with this contagion. Hicks follows that question up with another. Do his kids ever listen to him? The coworker grins and replies, never. With that, the coworker suggests that they get some lunch so that Hicks can get back to patching that tunnel. We wouldn't want to hold up Dr. Calm in an emergency. On that note, Hicks looks up at the massive tunnel, and we see that it stretches for miles. A few days later, Ripley and Newt have seemingly made up, and Newt is heading upstairs for bed. Once in her room, Newt sneaks out her bedroom window and carefully uses the window ledge to climb up onto the roof, where she makes her way to the other side, climbs down onto the garage, then the fence, and safely to the ground. She heads next door to where Jor is waiting inside the Harris vehicle. He and Newt drive off. Outside of Costaguana is a wasteland. The bones of abandoned buildings haunt the junkyard streets. Tents and shelters have been haphazardly constructed from hunks of whatever scrap could be salvaged. Despite the desolation of the landscape, people are out in abundance. Crowds gather around campfires as different groups compete to see whose music is the loudest. Newt, Ronnie, and Louisa join others around their age on the roof of an abandoned building, a few floors above street level. Amidst the chaos around them, Newt and friends look out of place. Jor approaches them with a group of other boys, and Newt begins to talk. When offered drinks, Newt is the first to accept. Jor talks about how he's planning to run away from his asshole parents and join the cause. Newt asks what cause, and Jor replies, the protesters, the anti-contaminants. Surprised, Louisa asks if he doesn't think there's a virus, and Jor replies that it's all a big conspiracy. He believes the government's in league with the company, and they're behind the whole thing, using the virus to inject civilians with mind-controlling nanoprobes, and that it's all about control. Friends challenge him, but Jor insists it's true, and asks why they think the whole state is set up the way it is. Quote, It's so they can watch us from there, as he points to a colossal superstructure far off in the distance. Newt looks to see the building and becomes mesmerized by the sight. Though miles away, the mountainous tower perforates the otherwise level horizon emitting an ominous orange glow that illuminates the thick clouds surrounding it. Jor continues, It's like a panopticon, man. It's right in the center of the whole state, watching all of us, all the time. Newt is transfixed, as Jor continues. That's where Calm and all the other assholes operate, man, running everything and making us think we're free, but controlling where we shop, what we buy, what we eat, what we think, where we can and can't go what we can and can't do, telling us that we need them, that we can't survive without them. Newt narrows her gaze and adds that it's for our own good. Surprised, they all look at Newt. Jor smiles. Exactly. He lightly punches Newt on the shoulder to snap her out of her gaze. He offers her another drink, and she accepts. Throughout the evening, Newt visibly comes alive. She's laughing, dancing, and drinking with increased vigor, Newt's friends caution her, but she persists. A device is passed around from which various people are inhaling. It comes to Newt's friends, whom all decline, but Newt grabs it. A friend warns about the contagion. Newt takes a large drag from the device. Back at home, Ripley is nodding off on the couch while watching the news. The broadcast reports on a group of extremist protesters who were caught trying to infiltrate a nearby quarantine facility. The story emphasizes the danger of radicals and shows footage of a middle-aged, bearded man, haggard beyond his years, delivering a speech to a crowd. Ripley is roused by the sound of Harris yelling outside. When she looks out the window, she sees him storming inside, cursing Jorah's name. Their car is gone. Ripley pauses and looks towards the upstairs of her own house. The inside of Newt's room is dark, but a faint sliver of light hits the bed. Ripley stands in the doorway and sees the room empty. The window is open. Newt is gone. Shit. Outside, Ripley confronts Harris and confirms that Newt and Jor probably left Costaguana together. Harris insinuates that Jor is going to be in big trouble when they get home, to which Ripley replies that she's not waiting that long. Back at the party, the night continues in a frenzy. Newt, now intoxicated, is dizzily dancing with her friends. She stumbles and loses her balance falling. She appears unwell, looking pale. Jor watches and laughs along with his friends. She eventually passes out and collapses. Everyone laughs, and people begin pouring drinks on her face to wake her up. The group antics are broken up by a yell. Ripley arrives on the scene and pushes people away to get at Newt. Harris and his wife are not far behind and demand that Jor come with them. Ripley tends to Newt, who is barely conscious. Ripley shoots a vicious glare at Jor and the other friends. The next day, Newt isn't looking so well. She sits at the kitchen table while Ripley stands above her, chastising her. Outside, Hicks's truck pulls up to Ripley's house. Ripley continues to berate Newt, who looks more and more ill as she stares off blankly in the distance. Hicks enters amidst Ripley's tirade. When Ripley informs him of what Newt did, he smiles and laughs it off, much to Ripley's frustration. She blames him for putting ideas in Newt's head, and Hicks is offended at the accusation as well as Ripley's behavior overall. Hicks responds that kids get drunk, Ellen. It's what they do. As Ripley and Hicks argue, Newt states in a weak voice that she doesn't feel very good and keels over. As Ripley tends to her, she notices Newt has an intense fever. She looks up worriedly at Hicks, who looks down at Newt pensively and exhales loudly. Inside the crowded Costaguana Contagion Assessment Center, Ripley paces back and forth. Hicks tells her that he thinks she should sit down, but she snaps at him. She's livid at the situation, her panic and helplessness manifesting in a very short temper. She's mad at Newt, she's mad at Hicks, she's mad at Jor, and mostly mad at herself for letting this happen. Hicks stands up and tells her that she needs to breathe. Everything will work out. This angers Ripley even more. How do you know that? What if she's infected? What if she gets sick? After everything we've been through, she doesn't finish that thought. A staff member calls Ripley's name, and she and Hicks approach the counter. The staff confirms that Newt has tested positive for infection and must be quarantined immediately. Ripley is distraught. Hicks comforts her. Ripley asks if she can see her and is told that Newt is already being shipped to the Fiorina 161 quarantine facility outside of Costa Guana. Ripley can't believe what she's hearing. Newt is already gone. But the staff confirms that they cannot risk further contamination and that this is standard procedure. Ripley demands to see Newt, but is bluntly told that she's gone. Ripley will be allowed to visit Newt at the quarantine facility in 48 hours' time. A few days later, Hicks and Ripley pass a sign reading, You are now leaving Costaguana and approach a checkpoint. Beyond the checkpoint is an armed gateway leading to a long tunnel through the giant structural wall surrounding the region. Massive guard towers flank the wall's perimeter. Ripley looks up at a giant surveillance camera as they pass through the gateway and enter the tunnel. The sterile uniformity of suburban Costaguana is contrasted to the decaying, poverty stricken areas beyond the walls. Ripley watches out the vehicle window as dilapidated homes pass into view. Hicks maneuvers carefully through the junk littered streets. Broken vehicles sit rusted and rotting. Tent cities occupy street corners. Junkies lie unconscious among the rubble. Traffic comes to a grind and cars honk ahead of them. Ripley asks what it is and Hicks states that there's some sort of protest up ahead. He guesses that the crowd is so large because Julian Com is on assignment at the facility right now. As they near the scene, Ripley sees the same bearded man who was featured on the news. He stands elevated, making a speech through a megaphone. Ripley sits up and lowers the vehicle window to hear the speech as they pass by. The man claims the virus is a conspiracy And warns people not to enter he continues that the company is using citizens as lab rats he states that the danger isn't out there somewhere the real danger is inside ripley continues to look on as the car pulls away they approach the fiorina 161 quarantine facility a giant metallic looking dome shaped building with no windows inside they are adorned with hazmat suits and escorted through the intimidating facility Unlike the assessment center, the hallways are unnervingly quiet. All doors are closed. Medical staff are surprisingly scarce. As they approach a door, they're told that only immediate family may proceed. Hicks assures Ripley that it'll be fine, and he waits behind as she's escorted inside. Ripley is brought into a cramped, darkly lit room. On the other side of a large transparent divider, Newt lies on a bed. Hooked up to various breathing and incubation tubes, and lit from above by a narrow spotlight. She looks terrible. Her hair is thinning, her skin is yellowing and clammy, her breathing is labored. Ripley approaches the divider in shock. She calls out, but is told that Newt is only semi-conscious. Ripley can't look away from Newt. As she struggles to breathe, Newt manages to turn her head towards the divider and sees Ripley. Her breathing quickens, and Newt visibly becomes agitated. Ripley watches in horror as Newt becomes increasingly distressed, her cries muffled by the endotracheal tube in her throat. Staff tell Ripley that she'll have to leave, but she resists. This seems to aggravate Newt even more, and she thrashes around violently, clawing at the tubes within her. The staff insists that Ripley need to leave. A staff member enters the isolation room with Newt to begin calming her down, and Ripley sees that their hazmat suit is not fully sealed. Ripley questions why that medic wasn't fully wearing their suit, but facility staff begin forcibly trying to make her leave. Ripley struggles to stay in the room, continuing to ask that if Newt needs to be quarantined, why was that staff not wearing their suit? Newt tears at herself and manages to dislodge the tube from her throat. Ripley is stunned by what she sees. As Newt tries to scream, a small, pink, fleshy mass protrudes from her mouth. The mound springs outward before retracting back inside. Newt gasps and chokes as the medics reinsert the endotracheal tube and administers a sedative. Ripley is shocked as she's yanked out of the room by security. Hicks rises from his seat in the waiting area. As Ripley is brought into the room yelling aggressively, Hicks tries to figure out what's happening, but Ripley keeps angrily asking what they're doing to her. A man walks into the area and disrupts Ripley's rant, addressing her by her former rank, Lieutenant Ripley, which surprises her enough to quiet her for a moment. He introduces himself as Dr. Calm, Chief Medical Administrator, and asks if she'll come with him. Calm is flanked. ...by two security guards. Inside his office, Calm addresses Ripley and Hicks. Despite how vocal she was before, Ripley is now stone silent, staring off blankly. Hicks does most of the conversing as Calm explains how there's still much they don't know about the virus... ...and that hysteria and violent outbursts are not uncommon. He assures them that Nude is being watched regularly. Hicks accepts this explanation and is thanking Calm when Ripley interrupts, asking how he knew she was a lieutenant... Com explains that they do thorough checks on everyone who tests positive, including family members. Com comments on Ripley's former exploits and offers his condolences on the trauma she's been through. Ripley scoffs at this. Hicks thanks Dr. Com for his time and Com assures them they'll be contacted if there's any change. Ripley leaves silently. As Ripley and Hicks leave the facility, they're watched on a security monitor. On a public bench in the middle of a dingy inner-city park, Hicks and Ripley discuss what happened. Hicks stands as Ripley sits in disbelief, smoking a cigarette. In a trance from the shock, she reiterates that what she saw was no viral reaction. Hicks asks what she thinks it is, and she can't bring herself to say it. It was, she pauses, very familiar. Ripley explains that the look in Newt's eyes told her something wasn't right, When Hicks asks how she knows this, Ripley replies, A mother knows. Hicks accepts this, he asks what she wants to do, and Ripley says they need to get her out of there. Hicks reminds her that there's no way she'll be released, and Ripley snaps back that then they'll break her out. Hicks asks how she plans to do that, to which she responds, I don't know, and thinks for a moment, but I might know where to start. As night falls, the group of protesters have set up camps and bonfires at their site. The bearded man sits near a fire looking at a map with another protester, a man with glasses and a completely shaved head. They hear yelling and look up. Ripley and Hicks are approaching but are being stopped and restrained by other protesters. They tell her to back off, but she asserts that she just wants to talk. The bearded man rises and approaches Ripley, asking what her business is here. She is blunt and states that she needs to get inside the quarantine facility. The bearded man sarcastically asks her why doesn't she try the door, And Ripley looks unimpressed. The man looks away and states that he can't help her. They're just peaceful protesters. Ripley asks if it was their group who almost got in, which the man denies. But Ripley assures them that she's not the police, she's not a medic, and she's not the goddamn company. She doesn't care who they are or what their agenda is. All she knows is that her daughter is inside and they're doing something to her. Something beyond any virus. Some sort of experiment. She needs to get her out of there. Now, will they help her? Please. The man looks at Ripley and exhales. Inside an abandoned building, the group meet around a dim lantern. The bearded man, who we've come to learn is called Pasha, speaks about how at first there wasn't even an explanation for why the company started abducting people. It was like being drafted again, he says. If they called you, you had to go. They had all done their time in the service, so they knew the drill. He says, we thought we were doing our duty. But when those recruited never came back we knew something wasn't right we all lost people friends loved ones gone with no explanation one of our founders was a man named dean he was the spark that lit the fire under our asses organized the earliest of us they raided his house in the middle of the night and now he's gone but he's in there somewhere ripley asks if you can get him out of there where will you go the company has control over the entire state Pasha speaks of factions of others like them beyond any state, out in the Badlands. He suggests it's not as uninhabitable as they've been led to believe, and there are colonies beyond the reach of the company. Hicks asks why they've never heard about any of this. Pasha's bald crewman, whose name is Landis, bitterly replies, Look around, man. No one cares about what happens outside the walls. It's like the Wild West out here. People die on the street every day. Do you hear about that? Or give a shit? The company can do what they want out here. That's the truth we face every day. You people only give a shit when they cook up some virus to scare you out of your safe homes, Ripley asks. So you're saying they invented the virus to get people into those facilities? For what? Pasha responds, I don't know. You saw your daughter. You tell me. Ripley is distressed by the memory of Newt, but continues. I don't exactly have the best track record with the company either. This captures everyone's attention, Hicks urges her to stop, but Ripley continues. I was a flight officer for the company for years, on the way back from a deep space expedition we were sent to investigate a derelict alien spacecraft. We'd never seen anything like it. The crew reported a giant fossil of something that looked like it had grown out of the ship itself, fused to it. My crewman became infected with a parasite and brought it back onto our ship without us knowing, but the company knew. They wanted it for their bioweapons division. It grew inside of him until it burst its way out and killed the entire crew except for me. Years later, I returned to the planet with Corporal Hicks and a group of colonial marines, again on company orders. It was an ambush. Just another opportunity for them to get their hands on this species. What I saw happening to my daughter today, what she was becoming. It, It looked like one of them. I know this sounds crazy, but if you'd seen what I've seen... I'm just worried for my daughter. Pasha pauses for a moment and shakes his head in affirmation. And let's go get her. The group stand around a table, and Landis explains that they found these schematics on a raid of another facility, but they're out of date and incomplete. Hicks, working for company engineers who have designed similar complexes, believes he can help fill some of the gaps. They plan a way inside. The group have amassed weapons, pulse rifles, and grenades. One of the crew asks Ripley if she can handle a weapon she looks at Hicks and smirks. Oh yeah. Under the cover of darkness, a group of six, including Landis, Pasha, Hicks, and Ripley, approach a fence perimeter outside of the quarantine facility. One of them drives a small device in the ground, cobbled together by various parts and materials. Pasha gives a signal and the device activates, emanating a loud electric pulse. The lights around them go out. Crewmen dismantle a sewer grate, and they sneak into a narrow storm drain. A moment later, the lights come back on, but the group are already inside. They maneuver through the sterile, windowless hallway of the facility, avoiding staff, using makeshift devices to open locked doors and disable security cameras. When they get to the intensive care area that Ripley had been escorted through earlier, they find no one. The area doesn't even appear to be set up to host patients, like no one's ever been there. Ripley enters the viewing room where she last saw Newt, but it's empty. Pasha suggests they look elsewhere, but Landis points out that they wouldn't know where else to look. Ripley looks at the door which leads to the room on the other side of the divider where Newt was being kept, through there. When asked how they'll get through, Hicks shoots holes in the glass and shatters it. He looks at the others who are startled by the noise. He replies, they won't have much time. Once beyond the doors, the hallways are shrouded in darkness, lit only by dim red lights. The place is eerily silent and unsettling. Hicks spots a set of doors with black and yellow warning stripes painted across. A biohazard symbol is displayed. Landis is hesitant about entering, but Ripley charges on ahead. The room inside is even more chilling. Lit in more dim red, it's at first hard to make out the area. The room is steamy and appears humid. Pasha turns on a flashlight and the group slowly make their way through the hazy space, careful not to disturb anything. The room appears to be some sort of biochemistry lab, complete with lab equipment, microscopes, hazmat suits, and gas masks most prominently tall cylinders of a mysterious black substance are kept behind walls of glass all labeled with the biohazard logo Ripley passes through a sanitization tunnel and discovers a hopeful sight: a large dark room has rows of patients on beds she calls to Hicks and they rush over inside they spread out and check the patients to their communal disgust the patients are all grotesque some are just sickly and pale Some appear to be mutated into strange skeletal forms. Some are comatose. Some are in agonizing consciousness. Landis notices a particular patient and calls over to Pasha. Together they look at the figure restrained to the table. Though horribly disfigured, part of the face appears familiar to them. It's Dean. Landis frantically questions what the hell they did to him. Dean's body is almost no longer human. His skin has become black and leathery, and some of his bones appear to be too big for the flesh around them. Around the tubes in his mouth, we can see his teeth are jagged and uneven. His eyes are gone. Across the room, Ripley calls to Hicks. She's found Newt. Still looking clammy and pale, Hicks begins to remove the tube from Newt's throat, and Newt sputters and coughs. Ripley looks inside Newt's mouth and sees that the deformed mass is still present. On the other side of the room, Pasha removed the tubes from Dean's mouth, and he suddenly springs to life. He spews greenish vial which starts to burn as it makes contact with the restraints around him. He begins gasping and choking while Landis tries to calm him. They tell him who they are and that they're going to get him out of there. Dean takes in just enough air to make an audible sound. Though distorted and raspy, Pasha and Landis are able to make it out. Kill me. An alarm sound breaks the silence and the doors fly open. Several armed guards enter the lab. Dr. Com follows, demanding they not fire their weapons in here. The intruders are ordered to raise their hands. Dr. Com yells into the dark room that they're trespassing in a restricted area, and that they'll handle things reasonably if everybody comes out calmly. Pasha begins to raise his hands, but Landis isn't so calm. He yells, calling them bastards, and starts firing. Everyone ducks for cover. The guards start shooting back, much to Com's rage. Ripley shelters Newt as Hicks starts shooting too. Bullets ricochet off of the walls and start destroying lab equipment. One of the protesters is shot and killed. A guard is hit in the leg. Com grabs one of the guards and tackles him, warning them all not to hit the canisters. Pasha tries to pull Dean off the table, but realizes his body has gone limp. He's been killed by bullet fire. Ripley screams that they have to get out of there, and Hicks replies that the entrance is blocked. Landis shows Pasha the grenades he's carrying, and Pasha understands. He tells Ripley and Hicks to duck for cover. Landis hurls a grenade towards the guards, who quickly scatter. Com screams no and the explosion blasts open the doors, kills two of the guards and knocks more equipment off the table, shattering one of the biohazard canisters. Hicks picks up Newton. Ripley covers them. The gang run through the newly cleared area, but through the haze more shots are fired. A black smog begins pluming out of the broken canister and fills the room. Pasha tells the others to go and he'll stay behind to hold them off. Landis objects, but Pasha tells him to go and to get out and find the others. This is the mission. Landis grabs several gas masks from a nearby storage locker. Com looks up in horror as the black cloud rolls towards them. He screams that everybody needs to get out and seal the room. A guard reports that they can't seal the room because the explosion has blown open the doors. Landis, Ripley, and Hicks carrying Newt, and the remaining team member duck for cover as Pasha stands closer to the guards, firing bursts of bullets to keep them at bay. The black smog surrounds him and he begins reacting violently. The shooting stops as Com looks on in horror. Pasha's convulsing body begins thrashing around the space. His screams are choked by a grotesque gasping noise. A black liquid begins spewing from his mouth and his skin starts to bubble and peel. Com rushes out of the space as the other guards stand stunned. Everybody soon picks up on Com's cue and start to evacuate too as the black fog continues to spread. Landis pulls Ripley away, but she can't take her eyes off of Pasha. The bone structure of his face mutates and bulges. His eyes pour out of their sockets with a flood of the black goo. The last thing Ripley sees before being yanked away by Landis is Pasha opening his jaws wide, revealing a row of sharp metallic teeth. They all scramble towards the hallway and begin running at a sprint, guards included. Flashing red alarm lights create a disorienting strobe effect rushes into a doorway that gets sealed behind him. One of the guards tries to go the same way, but it's locked. The black cloud envelops him, and he starts to have the same violent reaction that Pasha did. One of the guards stumbles due to a bullet wound and grabs onto Hicks, taking he and Newt to the ground also. Ripley stops to help, but the guard won't let go of Hicks's leg. Desperate, Ripley begins violently kicking the guard until he releases his grip. She helps Hicks and Newt up again, and they continue running. Behind them... The fallen guard is consumed by the smog and begins his monstrous transformation. They reach a busier corridor where other staff members are evacuating. Landis takes this opportunity to give Hicks and Ripley a pair of gas masks and keeps one for himself. They blend in with the crowd as other guards try to make their way to the source of the problem. One of them spots Ripley and the gang of intruders and orders everyone to get down as he sprays a barrage of bullets into the air. The crowd of people react and take cover leaving our heroes exposed as easy targets the guard takes fire and kills the remaining protester but is immediately attacked by a mutated pasha while still mostly human he's developed sharp metallic teeth and claws that have ripped through his clothes he bites at the human guard but is shot in the process pasha's blood sprays and begins to burn the floor around him ripley hicks and landis take this opportunity to continue escaping along with the rest of the crowd the guard who had been attacked by the mutated pasha begins convulsing and mutating as well. More mutated humans spring out of vents and doorways and descend upon the evacuating staff members. Some are ripped to shreds while some are merely wounded and then begin to transform themselves. Amidst the chaos, the emergency exits become overrun and blocked, Landis spots a ventilation duct and they climb inside, Hicks with the added struggle of having to carry Newt through the narrow ductwork. The mutants begin to run amok through the crowd and their numbers multiply. Mutated humans begin following our groups through the ducts. As Ripley, Hicks, and Landis reach a grate that leads outdoors, the mutants close in. Hicks asks how many grenades are left, and they toss all of them down the vent, just as Landis breaks through the gate. Our group are blown outside by the force of the blast, which blows a hole in the side of the building. The group runs out of the facility. Horns akin to air raid sirens fill the surrounding area as emergency vehicles rush towards the building. Hicks hands Newt over to Landis and breaks into a company ATV. They pile in and drive away from the site. Landis asks Hicks how he knows how to hotwire this thing, and Hicks replies that he knows a thing or two about company vehicles. In the side view mirror, Ripley sees the full scene. Flames and smoke plume from the dome as emergency lights strobe and create a lightning effect in the sky. As they reach the wall surrounding Costaguana, large hydraulic doors are closing to seal off the gate. Checkpoint guards are blocking the way, but Hicks increases speed. The massive company vehicle smashes the guard blockade and makes it through the checkpoint, narrowly avoiding the closing doors. Guards are ordered to pursue, but the sounds of explosions from outside the walls take precedent. The truck drives back to Kip's landing. As the sun is starting to rise, they arrive back at home, where they promptly get Newt inside and onto the couch. Examining her, they're unable to tell what's going on, but it's clear that her state is the result of whatever they were doing to her. Hicks asks if she's becoming one of those things, and Landis points out that if she had been infected like Pasha, she'd already be transformed by now. He suggests that Newt, like Dean, was a test subject for the black gas and hadn't been given a fully developed dose. Hicks wonders what the hell that stuff was. Ripley, while tending to Newt, joins in, stating that the company obviously got their hands on xenomorph DNA and that they're tampering with it and have turned it into some sort of pathogen. Hicks states that he thought all those bastards got fried on LV-426. Ripley replies, obviously not all of them. But what does it matter? It's here now, and Newt's infected. Hicks asks if Ripley wants to take her to a doctor, but Ripley replies, no. No one can be trusted right now. When Hicks insists they have to do something, Ripley replies that they have to get her back to a lab, and that someone who put this thing into her is going to have to take it out. Landis asks how they're going to get someone from the company to go along with that, to which Ripley replies that she'll persuade them. Landis interrupts and states that their plan may have just gotten even more difficult, gesturing to a video screen which is playing an emergency announcement. Hicks turns up the volume. The broadcast reports that a state of emergency has been declared in all of Metro State Delta and that all residents are in total lockdown effective immediately. No one is to leave where they are by order of the military. The group lays low for the rest of the day, but sirens continue to be heard in the distance. The emergency warnings become increasingly severe. Newt rests. Landis points out that they don't have much ammo left and asks if there's anywhere they can restock. Ripley reminds him that this is a suburb, they don't exactly have an armory. Hicks has a few guns at his place and he leaves to go get them, avoiding military vehicles. As the sun is setting, Landis and Ripley rest. Ripley on the floor beside Newt and Landis at the table. Golden light streams through the window slats. Landis asks where she's planning to go and Ripley responds that she has an idea. Landis reminds her that it's a suicide run. Ripley states that they could use his help, to which he angrily replies that he's not sticking around, saying, This place is a time bomb. He's getting out of the state to find the other colonies in the Badlands. Ripley says they can't do it without him and he asks why he should continue helping them. His friends are gone. The company's taken everything from him. This isn't his fight. He grew up outside the walls where no one gave a shit about him. Why should he give a shit about them now? Ripley replies that he's right. Those on the inside don't know what's really going on out there, and maybe that's how they want it. But turning your back on the other side doesn't make you any better. At the end of the day, most of us all want the same thing. As she looks to Newt, to protect those we care about. Landis says, I'm not willing to sell my soul to the company for that protection. How many orders do you have to obey, and how many people do you need to climb over to feel safe? Ripley thinks for a moment and looks at Newt. She says to Landis, When the company first heard about this thing, it was crew expendable. The next time they sent in Marines, just like you. She looks out the window to where Hicks parks his truck. They were expendable, too. She turns back to Landis. We know what it's like to not matter. Landis is silent, and Ripley adds, Whatever's happened, let's help each other now. Just after the sun is down, Hicks returns with a duffel bag. While heading inside, he hears commotion at the gate. He hurries inside. Ripley, Hicks, and Landis work out a plan. Hicks knows that while each district will be sealed off during a lockdown... There's an emergency tunnel system that leads straight to the central complex, used by officials and other heads of state during an emergency. If they can get into the industrial district and to his construction site, he can pilot a maintenance vehicle through a tunnel and straight to the tower. At full speed, they should be able to ram into and penetrate the complex. If they can barricade themselves inside with a hostage or something, then maybe they can get some answers about how to reverse what's been done to Newt. Landis points out that there's not much of a chance of them getting out of there alive, and Ripley responds, You wanted to know how far I'd go. Sirens begin wailing outside. They look at the broadcast, but the emergency coverage has gone off the air. They hear gunshots and screaming nearby. Hicks looks out the window towards the horizon. I think we have to go. The sound of a nearby explosion is followed by a loss of power in the house. They're left in darkness. Time to move. They ignite flashlights. Ripley wakes up Newt and asks if she can walk. Groggy but conscious, Newt is able to get to her feet and move with Ripley's support. With labored breath, Newt manages to convey that she doesn't want to go to a lab, but Ripley says it's for her own safety. Hicks gives Ripley a pistol and pulls out his trusty shotgun. Ripley glances at him and confirms, for close encounters. Landis is armed with his automatic rifle and gives everybody a grenade. As they near the front door, something slams up against it from the outside, banging and scratching loudly. Whatever it is has enough force to crack the door around the latch. They scatter to quickly move furniture in front of the entrance. Ripley tells them to be quiet. They hear no more scratching at the door. No sirens. Outside is silent. They cluster in the center of the room. Only what is in range of their flashlights is visible. They hear noises on the roof and the occasional scurrying around them. every time they look, the source is gone. Ripley slowly lowers her flashlight to the corner of the kitchen. There in the beam is what appears to be a human figure, wrapped in a bizarre contortion on the floor, but looking up at her. Ripley calls out, and all the lights move onto the figure in the house. Landis wants to shoot it, but Ripley says to wait. Though mutated, we can see that it is, or used to be, Jor. From next door. Ripley calls out to it, but it doesn't respond. His eyes have turned dead and milky white, his teeth jagged, his scalp mostly bald and his head misshapen. As they stand stunned and not sure whether to move or not, another figure appears down the hallway scurrying towards them, metallic looking fangs on full display. Landis fires his automatic and stops the thing in its tracks. It appears to have been Mrs. Harris. Jor is no longer in the kitchen. As they rapidly search the room, Something resumes its barrage on the front door. Other figures begin breaking in through the windows and Hicks holds them off with shotgun blasts. They are now under siege, trapped in the house. They cautiously move upstairs and into Newt's room. As Hicks and Landis move the bed in front of the door, Newt gestures towards the window. Ripley understands that Newt knows how to get out and encourages the others to follow her. Jor suddenly leaps out of Newt's closet and grabs Newt by the ankle. Hicks screams to not let it bite her and Ripley kicks Jor in the face to release his grip and shoots him in the head. Blood spurts up and begins burning the walls. Ripley begins to climb out the window and up onto the roof as Newt had done earlier. As Newt is being hoisted onto the roof by Hicks and into Ripley's arms, Newt sees something looming on the roof behind Ripley. She screams and Ripley spins around. In relief against the glowing orange sky, she sees a tall, lanky figure standing on the roof a few feet away. She turns to confront the thing while simultaneously trying to not let go of Newt, who is now hanging in the balance. The skeletal figure moves towards her and her flashlight beam reveals that it's a mutated Harris. His transformation is further along than Jor's was, and he has much stronger xenomorph features. While his eyes remain, his jaws are completely alien-looking. He slowly begins slinking his way towards Ripley, who is trying to pull out her pistol while holding on to Newt at the same time. Hicks shouts that he's got a hold of Newt and urges Ripley to let go, but Ripley continues to hold on. Zeno Harris hunches over top of Ripley, and saliva drips from his exposed metallic teeth. Hicks yells again, but Ripley is stunned. With a hiss-like sound, Harris's mouth opens wide, revealing an all-too-familiar set of inner jaws. As Harris is about to strike, Hicks yells again to let go, and Ripley releases her grip on Newt, who falls but is secured by Hicks. With her hand free, Ripley pulls out her pistol and shoots Harris through the mouth. She quickly rolls out of the way as he topples over her and plummets to the ground. The group climb onto the roof and make their way across to the garage and down. From their view, they can see sentinels of mutated neighbors standing in the shadows, ready to strike. The alien pathogen has spread across all of Kip's landing and possibly beyond, being transmitted with every scratch and bite. Our heroes time their jump down from the garage and head for their stolen vehicle. As they do, the lurking xenomorph-human hybrids spring to life. Landis holds many of them off with bullet spray, but it's a race to the vehicle, with our heroes making it just inside. As Hicks is starting the vehicle, a mutant appears on the roof and proceeds to punch a hole in the glass with its head. Hicks begins driving at high speeds and blasts the creature with his shotgun. Acid blood spills onto the glass, which begins melting it. A wild chase through the neighborhood begins, with Hicks dodging oncoming attacks from xenomorph-human hybrids while trying to see through the melted windshield. He drives on lawns over fake trees and fire hydrants to avoid obstacles and assailants. Landis advises everyone to cover their ears as he blasts interloping Xenohumans off the vehicle with his rifle. Neighborhoods throughout Costaguana have become war zones. Houses are on fire, cars are spinning off the roads, civilians are being attacked by their former neighbors. After narrowly escaping being blocked by a flaming vehicle, Hicks maneuvers them out of the residential district and towards the inner wall. The checkpoint at the wall is deserted. Bodies and pools of blood are strewn across the site. The guard doors have been burned and forced open, unclear if by the monsters or fleeing civilians. Or both. They engage more xenohumans at the construction site, but Landis fends them off while Hicks breaks through a chain-link fence and accesses the maintenance vehicle. More excitement! They narrowly all pile in and Hicks starts up the massive machine. Once activated, he pilots the tank-like vehicle over attackers, flattening them on his way to the access tunnel. Once inside, they're temporarily out of danger, but are on a direct path across the rest of Metro State Delta towards the Central Command Tower, into the Lion's Den. During their high-speed journey, the tunnel travels above ground and becomes elevated, and Ripley sees a full view of the area. Fires, blackouts, and general destruction fill the horizon as Ripley realizes the mutagen has spread across the whole state. Everything they know is gone. The central complex tower is as dark and menacing up close as it was from afar. The mammoth structure engulfs their view as they approach. Hicks increases speed and the giant vehicle begins shaking as it reaches maximum velocity. He tells them to hang on as he nears the loading platform. The vehicle smashes through warning barriers as it barrels towards the tunnel wall. Hicks yells to get down and the vehicle smashes into the complex, breaking through an interior wall. When the dust settles, they move inside. The complex is mostly deserted. There is evidence of a scrimmage, bullet holes, broken glass, debris. They find themselves in a giant lobby, which appears to stretch all the way to the top of the tower. Landis asks if they go up, and Ripley replies no. They're always down there, in the basement. The elevators aren't working, but they're able to enter a stairwell and begin their descent. After searching, they come across indicators that lead to a lab. Inside, they find a lab similar to that at Fiorina 161, and again, it's empty. Landis points out that there's no one. How can they find someone to help Newt? Ripley discovers more samples of the black substance, in smaller vials this time, labeled with the same biohazard logo. Ripley surmises that if they have a sample of the pathogen, then maybe somebody can synthesize a vaccine, and she pockets the vial. As they continue through the facility, Hicks calls Ripley over to a viewing window and asks what she makes of what he's looking at. As Ripley approaches the glass, she's shocked by what she sees. Inside a colossal hangar bay is suspended a mysterious derelict ship in a bizarre semicircular shape. Ripley confirms that the ship is what they encountered on LV 426 and realizes that the company obviously collected it and brought it back to Earth. She confirms that Kane said he saw thousands of eggs on board that ship. That's how the company got the alien. Despite warnings from Landis and Hicks, Ripley proceeds to investigate further. Beyond the suspended ship, they come across a giant pyramid-like structure. While parts of this new structure are clearly human-made, the pyramid has many similar features to that of the derelict, the same biomechanical designs and outer markings, as if human architecture has morphed into something extraterrestrial. As if unable to stop herself, Ripley proceeds inside the pyramid. The inside looks as Kane described the derelict on LV-426, black and organic, almost like the insides of a giant creature. The walls appear to be a combination of metallic conduits and living tissue. Landis comments about how humid it is inside, and they make their way to an expansive space and encounter a horrific sight. Reaching up to the top of a large atrium, the walls are adorned with sickly human figures that have been mutated into grotesque configurations and fused with machinery. Some of them are suspended by conduits, some have pipes coming from their mouths, some from their eyes, and some from other uncomfortable orifices and appendages, as they're bound and contorted into semi-erotic poses. Some of the victims appear as though parts of their bodies have transformed into mechanized sections of the giant engines that they're embedded into, being used as some hideous cog in the machine work. One unfortunate test subject has been fused into a giant chair, similar to the fossilized pilot on LV-426. The figures are placed symmetrically into a giant structure, both industrial and sculptural, which reaches upwards towards the ceiling. At the top is a small octagonal room with giant glass windows, an observation platform. The entire hall is a giant Gigerian nightmare, a skeletal orgy of patterned pipes, bone-like cables, and phallic structures, all in shades of black and silver, beautiful and sickening simultaneously, a perverted entanglement of metal and flesh. Ripley, Landis, and Hicks are revolted. Landis wants to help the subjects, but Ripley assures him they can't. Ripley shelters Newt from the scene and tells her not to look. Landis explores more of the gruesome display, but Hicks warns him to stay close. Landis is infuriated as he curses the company. He examines a nearby piece of piping in the wall and marvels at how they did this. As he does this, a spiny cable descends and lands on his shoulder, startling him. As he backs away from it, he takes a closer look, trying to make out what it is. Ripley notices and screams at him to get away from it, but it's too late. The piping in the wall directly behind Landis is actually the head of a nesting, fully developed xenomorph, which turns towards him. The spiny tail wraps around his waist, holding him in place. Face to face with the eyeless alien, Landis gets an intimate view of the creature's lips as they curl back and its silver teeth open. Ripley yells his name, but Landis screams back at them to run. The alien's inner jaw fires forward and punctures a hole in Landis' face, silencing him. More xenomorphs begin to unfurl and emerge from the walls. Ripley, Hicks, and Newt move to escape, but find the exits blocked. With nowhere left to go, they begin ascending the terrible tableau of human machinery. The xenomorphs pursue, and with slow, insect-like precision, start slithering up the walls after them. Ripley has Newt on her back, and Hicks is occasionally able to aim his shotgun below and take fire, but he's unable to dispatch more than one at a time. Ripley is forced to grab onto human body parts to continue climbing, and the subjects are obviously still conscious. As she comes uncomfortably close to some of the mutilated victims, she's disgusted by what she has to climb over, but has no choice but to keep going in order to survive. As the Xenomorphs are closing in, our group maneuvers onto a gangway which leads to a door in the observation platform. The automatic door opens and they rush inside. The small octagonal room is stark white, a crisp contrast to the hideousness outside, and lit only by candle flame. Standing at the large observation window, looking down at the scene amidst the flickering shadows, is Dr. Calm. He welcomes Lieutenant Ripley and Corporal Hicks. He looks down and welcomes Newt too. Ripley rushes him and puts a gun to the underside of his chin, calling him a son of a bitch. Com warns her not to kill him as he's the only hope they have of getting out of this room alive. The Xenomorphs can be heard scratching outside the doors and crawling across the windows. They're surrounded. Ripley asserts that he did this. He and his team created all of this. The plague was just a setup to get live human experiments. He assures her it's much more than that, saying, quote, We've learned a lot about the species that made that derelict ship you found on LV-426. We call them the engineers, astounding biochemists. They colonized worlds across the galaxy, enslaving inhabitants and using DNA from other species to grow their own biomechanical workers, a perfect blend of higher brain function and flawless machinery like the unfortunate pilot of that ship literally grown out of the navigation terminal he was created to operate the engineers could design a species to service whatever needs they had ripley asks so where are they all now comm continues with his precision coldness that's where your old friends the xenomorphs came in designed by the engineers as a weapon of biological warfare used to invade and exterminate entire races. Ripley fills in the rest. But they couldn't control it. And it ended up wiping them out, just like what's happening here. You've turned it into a virus and now it's loose. You've put us all at risk. All of us. The whole species. Calm replies callously. At risk of what? Fulfilling our purpose? Ripley looks puzzled. Calm continues. No one on this planet has spent more time with these creatures than you, Lieutenant Ripley. Haven't you ever wondered why their DNA is so compatible with ours? The Xenomorphs aren't the only thing the engineers designed. They made us, too. Made for one single purpose. To breed the aliens. We were made to be the perfect hosts, living incubators, for them. That ship may have even been on its way here when it crashed on LV-426. Com can see that Ripley is distressed by this news. Kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? We're as much a weapon of destruction as they are. Are we really worth saving? Ripley reacts by suggesting that if no one's worth saving, why doesn't she kill him right now? He tells her that the military is on the way. The entire Metro State is going to be nuked to stop the spread of the pathogen. But an evac ship will be arriving shortly for him on the roof. Kahn insists that he's the only chance they have. If they come with him, he can help them now. Help Newt now. He and the company. Outside the room, the xenomorphs continue to try and break down the doors. Ripley seems tempted by the seduction. She tries to challenge him by suggesting they can synthesize a vaccine, but Khan reminds her that a vaccine would take months to create, maybe years. Ripley realizes this is true and starts to lower her pistol. He asks her, Can you live that long with your little girl as a monster? Ripley looks at Newt, who stares back from behind Hicks. Still sickly, Newt gives a reassuring look. Ripley looks at her daughter with a sense of love and pride. Well, she says back to Calm, it's like you said. I guess we're all monsters. Ripley tosses the vial of black mutagen to Hicks, looks at Newt, and says, go. She turns towards Calm, pulls the pin out of the grenade on her belt, fires several bullets into the massive windows, and charges at Calm, knocking him through the glass and sending them both plummeting to the ground below. The xenomorphs scurry down to the floor after them, leaving Hicks and Newt with an opportunity to run out of the room. Newt screams and cries out for Ripley, but Hicks has to pull her away. An explosion from the bottom of the room is met with screeches from the swarming xenomorphs. Hicks and Newt run out of the room and towards an emergency lift. Aliens spot them and charge, but don't make it in time as the elevator doors close. With lightning speed, the lift rockets upwards, giving them a view of the entire lab. They look in sadness at the fiery wreckage below as they leave Ellen behind. The lift stops on the roof, where an evacuation ship is waiting, just as Com said it would be. While boarding, the guards demand to know who Hicks is, to which he replies by holding his shotgun to the guard's face. "Com is dead. This place is about to be nuked, Hicks warns. You can die arguing with me, or you can let us on board. The guard looks down at Newt and back up at Hicks. The low rumble of approaching air vehicles can be heard in the distance. The guard surrenders, and Hicks and Newt board the evac vehicle. The ship takes off and speeds away from the tower. From the sky, Hicks and Newt can see the state is in flames. Chaos has erupted in all districts. Destruction is everywhere. As they race away, the scene grows small in the distance, with only the central tower visible against the horizon. Suddenly, a pulse of bright light flashes above the tower, and the entire view is engulfed in blinding whiteness. Hicks and Newt shield their eyes, and as they look back, a massive mushroom cloud erupts over the state. They watch in silence as their former home is obliterated. Newt turns to Hicks. What do we do now? Hicks pulls out the vial of black substance and states, We get this to someone who can use it to create a cure and make you healthy again. Newt asks where, and Hicks replies that maybe they'll try to find those others out in the Badlands. There's lots of people out there. Newt becomes upset and states that Mom wouldn't want them to live out in the Badlands. Hicks comforts her and says, I think she knew you'd be all right. Newt rests in Hicks's arms, and the evac ship flies off into the night. The end. Oh, thank God. Thanks for sticking it out, folks. This was an ambitious undertaking, and I think there are some serious flaws. Um, what I came up with might be more tantamount to a first draft, and a professional with some real experience would be necessary to rework some elements. Uh, I know parts are cheesy, ham-fisted, and that the plot is a bit unbalanced, but this was a really tough idea to tackle, and I'm sure future passes could clean it up. Creating a whole new world that could exist in the Alien franchise and tying it into the previous movies was frustrating, but also a ton of fun. Since Alien is a gothic horror movie and Aliens is a combat horror movie, I wanted to create a new tone for Aliens Inside, inspired by conspiracy movies like All the President's Men or The China Syndrome, with action horror elements added. While I thought it would be neat to explore the origins of the alien species in the mysterious derelict ship on LV-426, I also wanted a third alien that was set on Earth, as I think many fans did, and could explore what it might be like to have xenomorphs in familiar places like inside homes and on suburban streets. I drew inspiration from such dystopian works as Escape from New York and Attack on Titan, and tried to emulate the suburban nightmare from Gremlins or Poltergeist. With the nuclear family setting, I tried to explore what Ripley might be like as a mother. She spent her whole adult life fighting the parental control of the company, but when she becomes a parent herself, does that need for control become a lot more desirable? How far is she willing to go to protect her daughter? What is she willing to become? After all, wasn't the Queen in Aliens just trying to protect her offspring, too? I wanted to draw parallels between Parenthood and the company itself, and show that anybody can become a bit vicious if the safety of a loved one is threatened. Especially when set against the backdrop of, say, uh, I don't know, a global crisis. And ultimately, I wanted to show that the company is the true villain of this franchise. While the aliens are the poster baddies, their villainy never extends past animal instinct. The company, on the other hand, strategically sacrifices fellow human beings for financial or military gain, nefariously claiming it's in the name of security. Isn't it ironic that in a series titled Alien, everything threatening, scary, and evil are all unmistakably human? And as always on Dodd does the sequel, while we like to imagine how we would restore an already broken franchise to its former glory, we never encourage making a sequel to a story that's already been fittingly concluded. In the case of the Alien franchise, James Cameron once again wrapped everything up so nicely, Fox probably should have just said, Game over, man. Game over. For the viewer's cut, I'm Andrew Dodd, thanks for listening, and remember that sometimes the best sequel is the one that never comes.